This is chapter two from Ezra Veda's book, Being Zen. The chapter is entitled, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. The movie Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control documents the lives of four unusual men. The first is a lion tamer in a circus. The second designs and builds robots, including little robots created to walk on the moon. The third is a scientist who becomes an expert on the private life of a hairless mammal called the mole rat. The fourth is a gardener who has spent 50 years pruning giant bushes into animal shapes. Although I've called these men unusual, they're actually quite normal. What they share with one another and with all of us is that each in his own way is trying to maintain control in an essentially uncontrollable world. What is unusual about them is their occupations, which amplify what we all do in our own particular way. That is, attempt to control the world in order to provide ourselves the illusion of security and happiness. The lion tamer's control strategy is never to show fear. Every time he leaves the cage, he is dripping with sweat, but he never lets the lions know that he is afraid. He must maintain the illusion that he is in charge. Even when a lion bites his calf and blood is dripping into his boot, he won't leave the cage. He stays to finish the act, to maintain his stance of control of these animals, knowing they could tear him apart in the blink of an eye. The robot, robot designer wants to create machines that will do his bidding in order to make the world a more efficient place. And he discovers that he can't exactly make the robots walk. All he can do is program a sequence of mechanical actions that might result in walking. This relatively simple task gives him a glimpse into the incredible complexity of human movement and the difficulty of programming change. Yet still he looks for a way to maintain the illusion of control. The man who researches mole rats sets up elaborate displays in museums to illustrate how like ants and bees, mole rats have a self-contained and intelligent community. He tries to duplicate the mole rat's natural habitat, which is an elaborate maze of underground tunnels. He realizes that in nature, something as ordinary as the foot of a passing elephant could crush and destroy this entire tunnel world. But knowing the arbitrary dangers in the mole rat's natural environment doesn't stop him from doing everything possible to create artificial conditions under which it can ward off any danger and guarantee safety. The gardener has spent half a century working in a wealthy woman's extensive garden, manually pruning large bushes into incredible animal-shaped topiary. Yet a single storm could destroy years of his work. The movie portrays him walking helplessly through his garden in the midst of an icy rainstorm, an image that evokes the gut feeling of groundlessness that comes when we realize how flimsy our control strategies are. Despite his diligence, he can never control the damage that nature's forces might wreak. Like these four men, all of us are doing whatever it is we do to shape our world in accordance with our illusion of control. Our world becomes small and insulated 
as we focus on some little corner of our self-centered dream, trying to bolster our sense of comfort and security. And yet, no matter how tight our strategy is, we're all just one doctor's visit away from losing control. The Tibetan Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron likens our ego to a room, a protective cocoon we spin exactly as we'd like it. The temperature is always just right. We hear only the music we want to hear. We eat only the food we want to eat. And perhaps best of all, we only allow the people we like into our room. In short, we make our life exactly the way we want it, pleasing, comfortable, and safe. But when we step outside the room, what happens? We meet the messiness of everyday life, particularly all those irritating people we're trying to shut out of our room, all the difficult and unwanted situations we're trying so hard to avoid. The more we meet this unpleasantness, the more we want to retreat into our room, our protective cocoon. We close the windows, we even cover them with bars and shutters. We put special locks on the doors. We do whatever we can to shut life out. But if we're fortunate, one day we might wake up to the realization that our room is a substitute life. In trying to control our world to make it comfortable and safe, we've narrowed our existence to the point where we're living a substitute life, one built on the foundation of our desire to avoid our deep core fears, fears of helplessness, of being alone, of being unworthy, of experiencing the anxious quiver of being. And the extent to which we wish to avoid these fears is reflected like a mirror in how we experience our life, because they close us down and hold us back. They numb us to our desire to live a genuine life. They block our aspiration to live from our naturally open heart. And consequently, even as we maintain our control strategies, we slowly stagnate in dissatisfaction, frustration, and a sense of disconnectedness. These are the signs that we are living in the self-imposed prison of a substitute life. When we are lucky enough to wake up to our situation, we gradually understand that it's only through living a practice life that this substitute life can be transformed into a more genuine life. A practice life might include meditation, but it certainly can't be limited to that. It must also include working with all the ways we keep ourselves from living a genuine life. Our idealized pictures of how life is supposed to be our pretenses, our self-images, our blind spots, our protective behavioral strategies, our knee-jerk reactions of anger, fear, and confusion. There's a Native American proverb that expresses awakening to this heartfelt desire to live an open and genuine life. It reads like this. Of the many paths that there are in this life, there is only one that is worthwhile the path of the truly human being. 
Interestingly, one of the essential ingredients of a genuine life is the understanding that everything in our life is the path, that whatever we encounter can be used to help us awaken. In large part, our efforts at control are geared toward preventing us from feeling our core pain, our core fears. All our ideals, all our expectations become a demand that life be a particular way. But this demand, this fear-based effort to control our life, this ego drive to build a protective cocoon has to be seen for what it is. And objective self-knowledge is the way we begin to see where and how protecting and defending. This is why it is such an important aspect of the path of awakening. We awaken to this self-knowledge through the practice of self-observation, whereby we begin to observe ourselves relentlessly, almost as if we were outside ourselves. Unlike our ordinary focus on ourselves, in which we spin repetitively, thinking about ourselves, analyzing ourselves, identifying with our situation, the observer's focus is objective. It's not analytical, nor is it judgmental. It simply sees what we do, how we think, what we think about, how and when we react, what our basic personal strategies are, what our basic identities are, what our core fears are. In observing ourselves objectively in all kinds of situations, we can begin to see clearly the components of our substitute life. Fear-based ideas of how we're supposed to be, how others are supposed to be, how life is supposed to be. We can begin to see the requirements we make of life and how we use them to gain the illusion of control. The observer helps us look objectively at what's happening, what our thoughts are, what specific reaction we're having, what we do with it. This is not introspection, it's just awareness. Awareness of our conditioning in all its manifestations. Nor are we looking at our conditioning as history, focusing on why we are the way we are, but simply as part of what's going on. And observing objectively, without our usual tendency to see everything as good or bad, we develop a sense of spaciousness that allows us to observe from a broader vista than our usual narrow identification. We're able to recognize that whenever we're having an emotional reaction, there's something within us, something running us, that we don't quite see. Knowing this and approaching our emotional reactions with curiosity offers us a clue about where and how we are trying to control our world to suit us. For example, imagine that someone criticizes us publicly. We react immediately with anger. Then we might move directly to self-justification and blaming, locked into a tape loop of thought. As feelings of rage rise to the surface, we might obsess on how unfair this person is, or even on, on how unfair life is. 
But if something in us remembers the practice life, we will recall that our emotional reaction is an alarm clock to wake us up to what's actually going on. Then the observer will kick in and start noticing the repeating thought, this isn't fair, even as the internal turmoil continues. We might then see that our emotional reaction is arising directly from our requirement that life should be fair. As this becomes clear, it may be possible to observe and then experience the layer of fear from which this requirement is born, the fear of being helpless when we lose control. All our lives we try to make life fit our pictures so that we wouldn't have to experience core fears like this one. Where are we, lion taming, trying to create the illusion of control to hold back the time? Where are we creating inner robots, following mechanical patterns to just live life efficiently or securely, unaware of what really makes us tick? Where are we creating protected habitats or pruning bushes into animal shapes, pretending that the elephant's foot or the icy rains will not touch our secure world? To find the answer, we need only look at our emotional upsets, which are always a clue that there's some picture, some identity that we're still holding too tightly. We can then ask ourselves a simple practice question. What is going on right now? Are we just trying to look good? Are we motivated by the need simply to be comfortable or secure? Are we ruled by the desire for money or possessions? Does our distress come from our pursuit of status or power? Does our anxiety tie into our craving for approval? Are we just holding on trying to maintain control. All these patterns lead to a life of no real satisfaction. In other words, a substitute life. When we understand the connection between our emotional distress and our expectations of what life should be, we can enter more deeply into an experiential practice life. Our path will take us directly to our core pain, into the helplessness of the loss of control, our fear of rejection or abandonment, our basic belief of separateness. As we enter into this place that we've avoided for so long, we discover our capacity to just be there without getting lost or overwhelmed. We experience that it's our willingness to just be with the difficult place that engenders a spaciousness around it. We learn that we can let this place penetrate our hearts. Until we turn and face what we spent our whole life avoiding, what are we really doing with our lives? Practice is not some pretty thing we do just on a meditation cushion. Until we learn to observe ourselves objectively, we will remain prisoners 
of our substitute life. Yet as we live the practice life, looking with increasing honesty at all the ways that we've held ourselves back in fear, we can also begin to experience the freedom of stepping outside our protected room and into the genuine life that awaits us.